Hello everyone, welcome to Blunderphonics, where we put music's most troubled productions to tape. I'm Jack Durback. I'm Spencer Faust. And Spencer, it's been nine episodes. We've talked about ten albums from a wide variety of artists. It's about time that we call it quits from here, because the album we just listened to today... was the ultimate final boss of music. Uh, I, I think there's no better place for us to call a temporary break for season one. I don't know. What do you think? I Yeah, I know. I did hear the final boss music uh, when I booted this one up. Listen, Jack, I think this past season has been... Uh, it's it's time to hang up the jersey and bring in, um, bring in a fresh set of hosts because, Jack, I'm a changed <laughs> man. I don't know about you, but uh, but but I'm not the same man that this podcast started with. I feel like I've gone through a metamorphosis for the worst. I'm a shell of who I used to be. <laughs> you know, my doctor actually told me I need to cut the stressors out of my life, and I think this is exactly what she meant. Are you saying that I'm enabling you to be stressed and depressed? I think that's exactly what it is. I'm, a, I'm an abusive spouse when it comes to music. Marie Kondo would, would ask me to remove you from my podcasting life because you do not spark joy in me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've listened to all of these different varieties of music that uh, you previously hadn't really listened to before. And I wanted to hear if you are happy about all this musical exploration, but it kind of seems like I've mentally broke you. <laughs> well, Jack, Jack, you have you have opened my mind, much like... An axe hitting an unsuspecting victim. You've opened my mind. Um, and and I, I've enjoyed the past ten episodes in a masochistic sort of way. Well, I, I'm glad you at least enjoyed some of the torture. Was there an album that you listened to that you actually liked? I know you liked Steely Dan because they actually made sense. I enjoyed Steely Dan's <laughs> Gaucho. That was fun. I kind of enjoyed some Prince. But I don't think anything, anything was good enough to justify what happened to me today. You even liked Chinese democracy? Get the fuck out of here. No. <laughs> don't put your words in my mouth. Oh Axel my God. Chill. I figured that we've had a good run and it was time for me to finally kill you. We started with Loveless, which blasted noise into your ears and blew your brains out all over the wall. Blew up my dog. You tried to phase me with Bedlam and Goliath, but it was no use. I had Daniel Johnson in my pocket. I had the White Album and all of those weird trips to India. <laughs> and now we are here at Captain Beefheart and his magic band presenting us Trout Mask Replica. I've had all my I've had all my trap cards. I've had my counter spells ready, but but Exodia here is about <laughs> to knock me off the field. Oh my god, this is like the Exodia of music. You're absolutely right. It's it's an album that destroys any other album in terms of uh, experimentation, batshit insanity, and troubled production, of course. And I think there's no better way to cap off season one than to throw you to the wolves. Spencer, what did you know about this album before we listened to it? Absolutely nothing other than it was going to be an obstacle course going in. <laughs> And an obstacle course it was. I was very much blind. I've never even heard of Captain Beefheart. I, I don't think I've ever even heard the name. You've apparently mentioned it to me and maybe played a song of his or something. And 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 apparently I said, hey, this isn't so bad. But I don't remember any of that. That was a fugue state as far as I'm concerned. Uh, back in college, I listened to it for the first time. And it blew my mind because I was a huge fan of Tom Waits. And listening to this album was like hearing Tom Waits travel into the past but his time machine ended up throwing him into a blender and just completely massacred his music. So I played it to you and your girlfriend because I knew she was a fan of Tom Waits. I was like, 
this is like Tom Waits, but like horrible. And you're like, eh, it's not that bad. I played Frownland for you, the first track. And I've grown to really appreciate this album in a way where I guess some people like self-mutilation uh, because it is not, it's not a fun listen. It's an hour and 20 minutes of the weirdest shit you will ever hear. But let's talk a little bit about what causes a man to create something like this. Yes, because please. It doesn't Please. take a sane man. I don't uh, know his nationality. I don't know what year this was made. I don't <laughs> know who Captain Beefheart is, if that is a real man and not a fucking code name for a CIA agent who makes torture tapes. <laughs> well, we have to rewind a bit into the 1950s and 60s. This album was produced and released in 1969. So around the same time the Beatles were being hailed as very experimental musicians, you had this creepy motherfucker sitting in the back with Charles Manson, wanting to make his own music as well. Around the same time man is landing on the moon, this mistake is, <laughs> is happening. I I'm not entirely sure if Captain Beefheart originated from the moon, like we brought him back. I think we took what was an ordinary jazz album up there, and all that radiation on the way back in <laughs> turned it into this. <laughs> Captain Beefheart was originally known as Don Glenn Vliet. Uh, he eventually changed his name to Don Van Vliet, because he thought it sounded funnier, and then eventually he changed it completely to Captain Beefheart, because why not? Uh, I, I think he had a fascination with weird-sounding words. That's why he had certain band members change their names to things like Zoothorn Rollo and Mascara Snake. He liked to say things I, like Fast and Bulbous. I don't think you can make other people change their names for you. That's, a, <laughs> that's pushing it a bit. You would think, but Captain Beefheart is the kind of person where if he wanted you to change your name, you better damn do it. We have to roll back a little bit into his high school years because he wasn't the only psychopath in the music industry to have been born out of the same high school. He was actually high school friends with Frank Zappa, who I'm sure you've at least heard in passing every now and again. Yeah, of course. Yeah, we all know the Zapp. Frank Zappa is kind of known as the godfather of comedy rock. He has a lot of variant albums between just jazz rock, uh, instrumental albums, to very satirical, goofy, tongue-in-cheek songs making fun of the Beatles. Frank Zappa is known as one of the most accomplished independent musicians of all time. He was almost always an independent musician. He never really signed to any major record labels. The one time he did, he definitely got his money's worth out of it. But Frank Zappa and Captain Beefheart were high school friends, and they always kind of kept in tabs with one another. They were sort of like half friends, half music rivals. Think Ash Ketchum and Gary Oak. They sort of had a friendly competition to see who was the weirder asshole in the music industry. Frank Zappa is kind of the enabler of what is about to happen. Uh, he ended up signing to Verve Records in 1967, I believe. And at a certain point, Verve Records let their contract expire. And usually, when you think of a record label, uh, they don't let contracts just expire. They don't accidentally lose control of their artists. Uh, and this is exactly why, because uh, Frank Zappa was making a lot of money for Verve Records, and when the deadline passed up, Frank Zappa made absolutely sure that he was going to get absolute creative control for the rest of his life for all of his music, everything he worked on. And through some sort of sheer magic, because his deadline passed up on his record label, he was able to create 
his very own record labels, Bizarre Records and Straight Records. Sounds like a, like a music totalitarian. He seized complete control. It was almost as if he was a cell that broke apart from like the larger organism and he just started multiplying. Like he, he was <laughs> able to just... I, I, like, I wanted to do more research into what exactly happened here, but it really just sounds like his contract expired and he was able to all of a sudden become a music businessman. Like, he started making a lot of money signing artists and having complete control over what he wanted to do as an artist, which is something you don't really hear about all that often. Oh, no, not at all. Labels uh, need to keep the artists in line, I've always said it. <laughs> but he founded Bizarre and Straight Records. Specifically so that he can sign weirdo artists to Bizarre, artists that he felt like were pushing the boundaries of music. But in order to also stay financially stable, Straight Records was where he was going to have the more commercial <laughs> artists. I'd love to see um, the, the, the financial meetings up there as if they exist. <laughs> it's like James Gunn doing Guardians of the Galaxy and then being able to do Super, something like that. <laughs> Or like, you know, Ryan Reynolds, he had to do all those shitty rom-coms and Green Lantern to get to Deadpool. Like, eventually you just end up being awesome enough where you could pull this shit off. Take risks, so to speak. <laughs> He's just like j charitably subsidizing bizarre records at this rate with all of the money <laughs> of straight records. I like it. Uh, another strange thing is that because of his expiration with Verve Records and founding these new record labels, uh, he eventually had Warner Brothers start distributing his records to the United States. And he never really had any record label interference. As far as I'm aware, he just accidentally got a lot of distribution and kept his creative control without anybody saying, eh, this is kind of too weird for us. And I know this is all very strange to be talking about Frank Zappa, how he accidentally became the most successful independent musician ever because... What does he have to do with Captain Beefheart? Well, eventually he falls into that vat of vat of Joker goop, <laughs> that Joker jelly, and becomes Captain Beefheart. That's right. He, he eventually becomes his alter ego, Captain Beefheart. When he found these two record labels, Bizarre and Straight, uh, for some strange reason, uh, even though he wanted Bizarre to be the weird shit, uh, he signed Captain Beefheart to Straight. He's like, you know what? You're my good friend. I'm going to have you be on this record label where we have more commercially successful artists. And, you know, he would sign artists like Alice Cooper in the future. So, you know, he, he had a pretty good idea of what was going to be successful. But, you know, sometimes you have to throw your high school friend a bone. You're like, okay, you know, Beefheart, you're going under this weird new name, but I really respect you. We have a lot of similar tastes in music. They bonded over R&B records a lot during high school. And uh, Captain Beefheart was having some trouble having any sort of financial success in the music industry. You could say he's a perfect fit for Bizarre Records. Okay. <laughs> Which is why he got signed to Straight for some reason. Captain Beefheart found the Magic Band in 1964, and everyone in the world was saying, your music's too fucking weird, and it's not making any money, we're dropping you. Like, anyone who even notioned, oh, maybe Captain Beefheart is, you know, a respectable musician. No, too fucking weird, get out of here. So when Frank Zappa shows up to Captain Beefheart and says, hey bud, I have my own complete artistic freedom, Warner Brothers just gives me money, and I make whatever I want, I really respect you, and I'm gonna give you your very own chance to make a masterpiece. Captain Beefheart was given complete artistic freedom from Frank Zappa. Frank Zappa had entire control, and he was like, dude, I believe in you. I want you to make exactly the record you have in your brain. Whatever you want, we are going to distribute it. 
I don't care how weird it is, go for it. Frank Zappa gave him a bunch of money. He signed him a blank check for the cash and a blank check for crazy. I got it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, he's the sky's the limit, man. Do what you want. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm sure all that money went to every drug known to mankind because after Captain Beefheart was given this opportunity to create whatever he wanted, legend has it, he sat at a piano an instrument he had never played before, and over the course of eight hours, wrote the entire album of Trout Mask Replica. That requires either a tremendous amount of self-control or a tremendous amount of amphetamines. <laughs> I think we know which one's which. I, I think we do. Captain Beefheart had claimed that throughout the entirety of Trout Mask Replica, he and the Magic Band swore off drugs. They wanted to create an artistic masterpiece without the aid of any sort of enhancements. Now, the band has since gone on to say, yeah, fucking right. Have you listened to the album? You know what, but actually? Um, maybe that makes sense because this album probably sounds like what withdrawals feel like. <laughs> you would think that if you were on drugs, this would sound like a nightmare, like you would think you would be dying. You have to be sober to be this crazy. But he started writing these surreal, polytonal songs of incredible complexity. He planned out every single segment of what he wanted Trout, Re Trout Mask Replica to be. And he had his buddy, drummer John French, transcribe everything he wrote. Because he actually knew zero music theory. He used to just be a singer. He used to just toot on a horn. But he was like, I don't know any music, but I like how this sounds. Write that down, John. John would write it down. And if he couldn't play it on piano, he would tell John to transcribe him whistling. Into piano. Exactly. And these weren't like full songs either. These were like segments. Little bits of songs that were being transcribed. Even though Captain Beefheart wanted to plan out every little section of Trap Mask Replica, they were all in bits by the time they were done writing. And he told John French to make songs out of the bits that he wrote down. That's a drug-addled statement. Don't, don't refute it. <laughs> it was like they wrote like a billion tiny fragments and it, it was like a giant puzzle and he just threw a thousand pieces at John French and said, you better make me a fucking entire masterpiece out of this. Because Captain Beefheart, he was fascinated with the fact that audio engineers would splice together different takes. Maybe the first half of a certain recording was good, but the second half was bad. And he was absolutely fascinated with that, and he wanted to incorporate that into the songwriting phase. So that the album sounded like an absolute mess, but it was planned. What? I'm, I'm <laughs> so... So he looked at, he looked at a structured you know, modern marvel of music editing and was like, I wonder how I can bastardize that. It's like if you live edited a movie. About three-fourths of the total album was written with the piano. The other fourth were transcribed whistlings. And John French cobbled together what he assumed to be compositions. Went to Captain Beefheart and said, okay, this is what I have. And he's like, great, let's go and start recording. <laughs> he grabbed all of his collection of brass instruments and they all, he moved him and the entire Magic Band to a communal home in Los Angeles and was like, okay, this is what I have and you are all going to learn how to play it note for note. They moved into the home in August 1968. Oh, to be a fly on the wall. Oh, to oh, be to one be of these tortured musicians that was getting... <laughs> how much do you have to get paid for this to be worth it? Judging by some of these songs, these are this is a large number of musicians he has... 
He has roped into this. Uh, I believe he had a bassist, drummer, two guitarists. You, you asked me how much money you need to be paid to participate in something like this, and apparently the answer is zero dollars. This is just, this is charity. This is some public service. Captain Beefheart moved his entire magic band into this home, and because Frank Zappa gave him complete artistic control to do whatever he wanted, he kept whatever money Frank Zappa gave him for recording to himself, and instead wanted to force his artistic freedom not as a liberty, but more as a strict dictatorship among his bandmates. So not only has he embezzled all of the money, but he's like, I'm going to abuse these free musicians. <laughs> That's exactly That's... right. They okay. didn't know at the time, they didn't know at the time that he was going to essentially force them into his very own cult. You're going to call me captain now. <laughs> you will address me about rank. When I use the word cult, I know that's not a light term, but this was seriously Captain Beefheart saying, you remember Charles Manson? That's me now. You're all going to listen to everything I say. He exerted his total control by absolutely dominating his bandmates. Don't tell me he was actually like he points to a framed picture of Charlie in the wall. He's like, that's my role model. <laughs> I don't know if he was inspired by the Manson murders, but he was compared to Charles Manson by people who would visit this home from time to time. Sometimes relatives of the band members would come and visit, and everyone looked like they were being starved to death. Captain Beefheart was forcing them to eat off of nothing but the bare minimum to survive. John French was living off of a can of soybeans a day for an entire month at one point. He's enslaved these people. He's taken yes. all of the money they could have been paid, and he's making them eat beans and rice. That's exactly what happened. Captain Beefheart would sometimes ban them from going outside at all, because he wanted them to sit inside and for 14 hours a day, practice to the perfect pitch and note, timing everything, what he cobbled together with John French. Because when I listen to this album... I'm like, this This is meticulous. You can tell not a, nary a note is out of place. What the fuck are you talking about? This is a nightmare, and he makes them practice it to perfection? Zero percent of this album was improvised. It's calculated madness. It, it literally, everything you heard before we started this podcast was exactly how Captain Beefheart wanted it to be. They, for 14 hours a day, for the period of... Eight months. Eighteen hours. Oh my god, what? They stayed in this house for eighteen or for eight months, practicing exactly how he wanted it. And if they didn't perform it right, he would put them in the barrel. What's the barrel? The barrel is metaphorical. Oh, good. But he would target band members every now and again. And over the period of several days, he would physically and emotionally abuse them. He would beat the shit out of them. He would say that they suck, and they have no idea what they're doing, they never played music before in their life, and he was their god. Until they completely broke down and essentially, you know, said, you are my Christ, I will never have a single individual thought in my life again. Please don't hurt me again. I think the literal barrel would have been preferable. <laughs> He's keelhauling his crew! <laughs> Joe Jackson looks like a goddamn teddy bear right now. What? <laughs> I, I will say that although I don't think it was ever officially diagnosed, uh, John French, the drummer of the band, was kind of seen as the middleman between Captain Beefheart and the rest of the band. He too also had the shit beat out of him by Captain Beefheart and mentally abused. 
but Captain Beefheart was sort of relying on John French to sort of piece this album together. Like, he was the arranger of sorts. And since he transcribed everything, it was kind of up to the band members to sort of ask him to ask Captain Beefheart, because they were too scared to ask him, what's going on? And Captain Beefheart at one point told John French that he was having schizophrenic delusions and conspiracies. Like, like he started believing in things that weren't true, and he thought that the band was either trying to sabotage his artistic freedom or something like that, and that's why he was behaving that way. He, he thought he was an undiagnosed paranoid schizophrenic. Hey, John, and John, 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 come here, come here, come here, come here. Listen, I know I just beat the fuck out of you earlier, but listen, <laughs> I'm doing so hot. I'm not seeing things the way they're supposed to be. What do you, what do you mean? What do you mean, Captain? I just, you are all playing like fucking shitheads, and I thought I hired musicians. <laughs> <laughs> now do another take! I, I don't know if this was ever officially diagnosed. I don't think it was, but John French, after this album was completed, would continue to sort of work on and off with Captain Beefheart and kind of attributed his abusive behavior during this time to the fact that he was not taking any medication for what was a very serious mental illness. But, you know, the rest of the band was just completely sick of his shit. He was purposely withholding money, making sure that everyone was doing exactly what he wanted. And I think this whole cult mannerism that he was trying to enforce on the band was planned. One of the band members, I believe it was Zoot Horn Rollo, one of the guitarists, apparently they hired him after he ran away from an LSD cult that almost starved him to death. Like, they found somebody who escaped a cult and said, hey, why don't you come move in with us? And, and it was the exact same fucking shit. <laughs> and he was bamboozled. Fucking salivating, just like, mmm, fresh meat. <laughs> he, he's like Pennywise, except instead of feeding off fear, he, he feeds off of people who have been in cults. He's like, oh, yes, come here. We all float down here. <laughs> At one point, the band got so starved that they, they escaped from the house without Captain Beefheart knowing. Not to run away, but to shoplift from a supermarket so they could actually eat something. They were caught by the police, and Frank Zappa had to go bail them out. You would, you would think to yourself, okay, Frank Zappa's the producer. He sees all these people starving to death, escaping from this house, uh, stealing food to survive. I should do something about this. No, no, he's not. Uh, Frank Zappa at one point said that Captain Beefheart was the kind of guy where if he had an artistic vision, you could not tell him otherwise. It's better to just shut up and let him do it. So he was an enabler. He took them all back to the house, shoved them back in there, and said, get back to work on the album, fellas. Get back in there. I need you guys to make me an album that'll make no money. <laughs> <laughs> the only time Frank Zappa ever told Captain Beefheart enough is enough. And I, 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 when I read this, I rolled my eyes. The one time he put on his producer hat, so to speak, according to one of the band members, was for a song called My Business is the Truth, Your Business is a Lie. He interfered because he thought that sounded too serious to counterculture, and Frank Zappa kind of liked to make fun of the counterculture. So he forced them to rewrite the lyrics, and they renamed it Old Fart at Play. That's the only thing that he wanted them to change. Everything else sounded fine to him. Frank Zappa, it's crazy because he's kind of seen as one of music's icons in terms of freedom of speech. He was an active uh, opponent against the whole parental advisory, uh, limit what people say in their music. He is seen as music savior of sorts 
during a time where censorship was all the rage. Yeah, I can see John French's rib cage from a mile away. I don't I don't think Frank Zappa's <laughs> the liberator we need. It, when you hear shit like that, it makes you think there is a reason why there has to be limitations. I, I think back to Prince singing about masturbating. I'm like, I can understand why a parent would want a warning Sometimes. on the album. I can see why stores don't want this in their shop. It, I'm not saying I'm for censoring speech but hey, listen jack sometimes it's not often i overlap with tipper gore <laughs> it's very very rare it's very rare but sometimes when when people are being starved to death and they have to steal to survive even then i don't think putting a sticker on the record's an adequate punishment <laughs> but <laughs> it's only when prince starts singing about masturbating i think o'shea needs to be brought in on that that respect but i think the sticker is a valid punishment <laughs> for prince after eight months of rec- of rehearsing and perfecting this album, uh, Frank Zappa started recording the album in this communal home. Frank Zappa had it in his brain that this was going to be a quote-unquote ethnic field recording. He wanted to hear the band in their most natural element, which I guess means living in a cult, being starving to death by Apparently- Captain Beefheart. That's what that's what he means. Okay, in fear of Captain Beefheart. I got it. He, I guess he wanted the audible form of being victimized. I guess I don't know, but <laughs> Captain Beefheart's uh, conspiracy started welling up in his head, and he started thinking that his high school friend slash rival was purposely limiting how much he was spending on their album. He was like. He said, this is my dream project, but he's having me record in this shitty-ass house. I deserve to record in a proper studio. This is horseshit. Wasn't Beefheart given a shit ton of money and then kept it all for himself? But I don't think he, like, physically handed him a boatload of cash. And regardless, I, think, I don't I don't personally care if Beefheart feels slighted. Uh, that That's fine by me. <laughs> Zappa, to me, sounds like the Kubrick of music. He's, he's gonna torture Shelley Duvall to get the right take. I feel like Captain Beefheart is more of the Kubrick. Frank Zappa's just a producer. He's an enabler. He's like, oh... You're crazy as shit, but I like what you're making. I like the art. I like your vision. I'm going to let you keep being an abuser because I like what's happening. And uh, I'm assuming Captain Beefheart didn't have to starve everyone to death, but that's something that he literally chose. You you don't think that was like a stipulation on the straight records contract? (laughs) I I don't think so. I, I think Captain Beefheart just wanted to be a maniac. I think he wanted to force his power in whatever way possible. I don't know if he starved with the rest of the band. All the horror stories you hear are about how he was awful to them. In my head, I don't think he was starving. I'm imagining him eating on like a fucking turkey leg, watching everyone else like shriveling in a corner. Is Friar Tuck eating a turkey leg, swigging from his grog, (laughs) captain hats on? I'm imagining Jabba the Hutt watching all of his starving slaves just work on his masterpiece. Don't look at me, turkey leg, or it's the barrel. (laughs) This is all a legend. A a lot of the horror stories that you hear uh, came from band members who talked more about them suffering. And obviously you don't want to say, oh, he suffered just as much as us. You just say, no, he was a dickhead. (laughs) So Captain Beefheart goes to Frank Zappa and says, dude... I want to record in an actual studio. And Frank Zappa's like, ugh, fine. Because, like he said, once Captain Beefheart wants to do something, it's very hard to convince him otherwise. Those conspiracies in his head are not easy to defuse. (laughs) You you can't argue with somebody who doesn't have evidence and try to change their mind when they've already said it, you know? It's hard to say no to the guy who, behind him, are three emaciated people cowering. (laughs) (laughs) They eventually go into an actual studio and record their instrumental parts. This is March 1969. 
the entirety of the band members' parts. They all recorded everything in a single six-hour recording session. Okay. I don't know if this. I don't know if this is due to uh, Captain Beefheart rehearsing them to the point to where they knew exactly what to play and they didn't need to do that much, or if Captain Beefheart was just like, "Ah, fuck it, it's close enough." <laughs> but because you you can't tell, I can't tell if this is. I don't know. But the fact that this was recorded in six hours. The entirety of the album, it's its shocking. Uh, Beefheart, however, did not have to limit himself to six hours. He got the luxury of recording his parts over a couple days. He would record his vocals and horn parts separate from the band so that he can get it just right. Um, I'm, I'm assuming everyone else had to record in a tiny box, and he was cracking a whip at him every single take. And and of course, nobody's going to tell Beefheart to do another take either. I mean, like, that, you get you get the barrel. <laughs> or, or you just want to be done with working with him. So you're just like, okay, whatever. If you think that's fine, it's fine. It's like Tommy Wiseau. It's like, uh, no, it's fine. That's a good take. We'll move on. Captain Beefheart did not want to listen to the instrumental tracks on headphones. He preferred to listen to the music bleeding through the wall of where, you know, the engineers were. He preferred to hear it quietly in the background because that's how it's like during a commando raid. You start hearing the bombs drop, and you have to start shouting when you hear the terror that's about to happen. And he's like, you know what? I'm inspired by that. I'm inspired by death and war. Was, was Captain Beefheart in the Korean War, is that, is that why he wants to do this? <laughs> no, he's just a prick. Yeah, okay. No, he's just an <laughs> asshole. All right. Yeah, I got you. So if you ever wondered why his vocals sounded more off than every other instrument, it's because... He didn't listen to any sort of reference track. He, he just shouted over what he was hearing behind the walls. Uh, by, the, by the end of his recording, uh, the band started doing some promo shoots, uh, used some professional photos to, you know, promote the album. Uh, but strangely enough, in most of the photos, John French is not present. The drummer. Apparently, at one point in time during one of Captain Beefheart's In the Barrel things, which... We're not limited to just at the communal residence. Uh, he fired John French, saying he was a shit drummer. He didn't know what he was doing. And shoved him down a flight of stairs oh. after he fired him from the band. Oh, he fired him from walking. And proceeded to erase his name from the credits. And after the album was released and every interview Captain Beefheart ever gave, he said, no, he arranged everything. John French had nothing to do with the record. He didn't even exist. He wrote everything, and he would go on to say that the band members never played an instrument before, and that he had to teach them all how to play their instruments from the ground up. It was literally all him, and it was like he was playing through other people, As even though the musicians absolutely played before. Specifically in a 1970 Rolling Stone interview, this is where a lot of the album story sort of took place. Captain Beefheart conjured up this idea that he was pretty much the sole person responsible for the album and that his band members, he just picked up off the street and taught them perfection. None of this is true. I don't know if this is him being crazy or if he's deliberately undermining his bandmates, even when they're not present. Like, you know, being that he's gaslighting the entire world so that nobody would believe his bandmates when they say he abused them. But everything that people love about this album, all of the strange artistic freedom that Captain Beefheart had, is usually attributed to his word. Whenever you hear other people talk about it, the other band members, no, they say he's an asshole and that he tortured them 
and more than likely wrote this horrible, horrible record just to torture them and told them to play this in a specific awful way just because he was an asshole and he was able to do it. Jack, so what you're telling me is he's the victim of a witch hunt. I understand. <laughs> I understand. Uh, the album came out and surprise, surprise, was a financial disaster. Not a lot of people bought it. At least in the U.S. I would have been mad if this made money. It did make some money in the U.K. What? It charted at number 21. It's like, oh, if Chris Brown released a record nowadays, it's like, oh, people don't really like to talk about him, but it still does well enough. No, it made, it made some good money in the U.K. And especially after the Rolling Stone interview, the album kind of became the music press's underrated child of sorts. Underrated? How? Um, well... Between Beefheart saying that everything was drug-free and that it was him and his most artistically free, the fact that it was all meticulously planned to sound that way. The music press, even from day one, I want to say, was like, it sounds awful, but that's on purpose, so we love it. This is subversive. This is changing everything we know about rock music, and this is awesome. From the get-go, this, this wasn't like, this wasn't critically panned. From the beginning, the music press enjoyed it H how do you feel about that spencer art was a mistake <laughs> i think art was a mistake and um it's it's done nothing to further mankind <laughs> if you truly feel that way allow me to start digging into a fucking book of quotes that i've compiled oh of people who cherish this album because this is this is not an underrated album anymore in my opinion if you're a fan of music if you talk to a fan of music, chances are they have listened to this album and they respect it in one form or another. Uh, let's start with The Rolling Stone. In 2012, they put it at number 60 of the one of the 500 greatest albums of all time. Of the 20th century, at least. So, you know, maybe Adele knocked it out at some point. I'm not sure. But um, BBC's John Peel, famous radio host, uh, he said that if there has been anything in the history of popular music which could be described as a work of art in a way that people who are involved in other areas of art would understand. It's literally any other album ever made. He, he said that, you know, when people look at the Mona Lisa, even if you don't understand, if you're not a big fan of painting, you know that's a masterpiece. He said if you showed, if you played this to like a group of art connoisseurs, they'd be like, oh, I get this, man. I Yeah, you know what? If I ring up my mom and have her listen to this, <laughs> I know the first words out of her mouth are going to be masterpiece. I think of that episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia when Danny DeVito's character dresses like Andy Warhol. He's just like, bullshit, bullshit. <laughs> derivative. Uh, derivative. I love that. And it's a fucking air conditioner. That's exactly what I think of whenever I hear that quote. Uh, Captain Beefheart. And Trout Mask Replica has inspired a number of musicians uh, and artists in other fields. Uh, it's an album favorite of David Lynch, Johnny Rotten, Kurt Cobain, and like I said at one point, Tom Waits, who was introduced to this music by his wife, Kathleen Brennan. And if you've ever listened to Tom Waits, the first half of his discography, the first half of his discography is sad drunk man playing the piano at a bar. <laughs> and out of nowhere... On swordfish trombones, he becomes a psycho jungle pirate. <laughs> Out of nowhere, he suddenly transforms into a literal boogeyman. <laughs> and it's all because his wife showed him this album. I've replaced your guitar with a can of spaghettios. 
throw this it at the, the wall. Asshole. I'm going to record that. This is the guy who said his favorite musical instrument is the sound of bacon being cooked for breakfast. At least, to my knowledge, Tom Waits never put anyone in the barrel. <laughs> uh, I love what he said about this album, because Tom Waits... You can tell, like, he read too much Jack Kerouac. He's too much into beat poetry because everything he says is a fucking work of art. He said that once you've heard Beefheart, it's hard to wash him out of your clothes. It stains you like coffee or blood. Is that a compliment? Oh, it abs- it is a compliment. It- it's like a traumatic moment that changes you forever. That's not, that doesn't clarify. That's not a good thing. <laughs> It's like if you're held at gunpoint and all of a sudden you you survive that incident and you're like, I need to be a better man. Except in this case, I need to be a monster. He also said that listening to the album is like taking a glimpse into the future. Like curatives, recipes for ancient oils. And of course, we can't go a fucking episode without mentioning this fucking band, but this album also inspired... Tell me what Paul said. No, 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 not Paul. What? But this inspired the Red Hot Chili Peppers. No! God damn it! This inspired the guitarist of the Red Hot Chili Peppers <laughs> to make blood sugar sex magic, which and it's like under the... How do you get under the bridge? Seriously. From fucking Frownland. None of them. You say inspired. It's in the loosest sense. Like they rubbed the two records together before releasing them. Maybe inspired them because they're like, oh, wow, that's what an album looks like. Like physically, <laughs> that's what one looks like. <laughs> like it's the least crazy shit you could ever hear. It inspired them to bump it one slot down on the Rolling Stones top 200. <laughs> they're like, there's, there's gotta be some way we can push that to a 61. It's not unanimous that this album's a masterpiece, but those who love it admit that sometimes it takes several listens. Mm. Uh, Matt Groening, who is known for The Simpsons and Futurama, yeah. uh, remembered the first time he listened to the album uh, at the age of 15. He said, I thought it was the worst thing I'd ever heard. I said to myself, they're not even trying. It was just a sloppy cacophony. Then I listened a couple more times because I couldn't believe Frank Zappa could do this to me. And because a double album costs a lot of money. (laughs) So you got to get your money's worth, of course. About the third time, I realized they were doing it on purpose. They meant it to sound exactly this way. About the sixth or seventh time, it clicked in and I thought it was the greatest album I ever heard. You know, a lot of evil things have been done deliberately. (laughs) It doesn't make them better. Like, I'm imagining somebody who's reading a history book, like, several times over, and all of a sudden they just start saying, I'm, I'm starting to resonate with Mein Kampf. It's, you know what, now that I know that Hitler did this on purpose, this was all intentional, I'm starting to get it. I kind of understand genocide now, He's you kind know? of underrated now that I think about it. Everyone thinks he was just super evil, but no, he did it on purpose, guys. It makes sense. E- eugenics? Underrated, 9 out of 10. Yeah, once you understand that that wasn't an accident. <laughs> of course, there there is so, there are some people who say that's horseshit. Uh, that's just Stockholm Syndrome setting in in a recording. If this is an acquired taste, I have not acquired it yet. <laughs> John Harris of The Guardian said that even after six, less, six listens, it sounded like ass to him. But my favorite quote comes from Robert Criscow, by far one of the most well-known names in music criticism. Oh yeah, he's a dreamboat. I have his picture above my bed. I, I mean, he's also somebody I highly disagree with. <laughs> um, he's the kind of person who gave the Backstreet Boys and Shania Twain an A+. And stuff like King Crimson, a D minus. He said it was artsy fartsy bullshit. He gave this album a B plus, said that it's a little bit too weird to give a higher rating, but said it's great played at a high volume when you're feeling shitty because you'll never feel as shitty as this record. (laughs) 
Oh, that's good. <laughs> that's the last actual quote I'm going to steal from Wikipedia because I- I'm sure there are a ton of other ones out there in the world I could not even... I- I- there's too much to mine for this fucking album. But Spencer... I think that you have been giving this album too much shit because the world at large pretty much fundamentally agrees that this album was the turning point in underground rock music. And because of its strange, erratic nature, its interesting rhythm section and ability to flip everything you know about rock music on its head, directly inspired those in the 70s and 80s to find their own creative spark, and it influenced new wave music, like the talking heads, eurythmics, things like that, new wave synth music, uh, and punk music. Because, you know, when the Ramones listen to something like this when they're 15 years old, they think to themselves, wow, that, that you can't get any more crazy than this. You can do whatever you want with rock music. Let's go back. Let's go back to the Stone Age just through power chords. The Sex Pistols looked at this album and said, we need to do punk music now. This is punk as shit. And Spencer, you're a big fan of punk music, so this has to be your favorite album now, right? Yeah, no, no, no. Here's the thing. Turning point, maybe. Uh, but you know what else could be called a turning point? The Holocaust? Right, yeah, you know, it only gets this, this uh, <laughs> a musical abortion. This is just 9-11 was a pretty much a pivot. This is uh, uh, basically a terrorist attack on the senses. Is now the time where we talk about what we think of it personally? <laughs> or have I done that the whole episode? Oh, yeah. I feel like I have a pretty good idea of what you think, but go ahead and just hammer the point home, Spencer. What did you think about the record? I woke up to a text about the length of the album because I listened, I listened to the album right before the episode is, is normally how I get prepared. So right. Jack tells me, hey, brace yourself. This is like an hour and 20. Get ready for it. I go to my living room and I've got I've got like a hi-fi stereo set up. So the album starts playing and like in the first 15 seconds, it's enough if it's, it's enough time for me to sit down. In the first 15 seconds, it sounds okay, actually. Well, basically around the time I sit down, uh, I immediately feel dehydrated by what I'm listening to. <laughs> <laughs> It just, it just sucked it all out of me like an audio sponge. I think he's making the lyrics up as he goes. It's just the weirdest freeform beat poetry. I think Tom Waits is dead on with that. I was like writing these notes down freeform and I'm kind of reading from them. And I think this is hilarious because I have my third note here is uh, track three. Again, good start. Now I wrote that not having actually been listening to track three. Instead, what I was listening to is a YouTube ad that has just popped up. <laughs> I've been listening to a, a cookie cutter jazz riff that's playing for some Stitch Fix commercial. Even though Captain Beefheart said that everything was meticulously planned, I do think the spoken words were, in fact, improv according to some band members. But yeah, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Dark Crystal. There's a scene where one of the little cute creatures that you're supposed to like gets put into a chair and has the life sucked out of him. <laughs> and he ages 80 years over the course of 10 seconds. Yeah. I, that's, I'm, I'm imagining you're a podling having the life sucked out of that you. That was a documentary and I was, that was me. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I need to send you that clip after this podcast because I think you will resonate with that very well. I'm like the evil Skeksis. I'm like the evil birds of Dark Crystal. <laughs> I think, I, I'm here to suck you of your life energy. I don't think, uh, what, what would you genre-wise call this album? Whenever you listen to something like this, you have to thank God that there is something that's just experimental rock. Or art rock. You mm-hmm. know, art rock that just does something interesting. That's good. How do you feel about Louisiana Curse? <laughs> Louisiana Curse Rock sounds awesome. That I think is that I think this is the pioneer of that. By the way, this album is is like the only case I can think of against YouTube without ads, because that's my only respite from this this album. 
Um, You're like, oh, thank God, a Fortnite video. Really, I couldn't tell what was fucking worse. This album or the ad where a man is screaming at me to do Twitch because Fortnite is on it. I don't... I think there was a creative decision somewhere in there where Beefheart was like, yeah, dude, forget the woodwinds, we're gonna, we're gonna bring in geese and we're gonna choke the lights out of them. <laughs> uh, Beefheart was the one who played all the horns. Mm. And, I, and remember, mm. didn't have any music theory, just sort of tooted. So the, the geese... The geese comparison is very accurate. And he overdubbed a lot of horns. But the band itself... It's just two guitarists, bassist, and drummer. I care. I don't know if I'm forgetting anyone else, but I feel like a reporter who's leaving out the names of a victim the, because it's just like these poor guys. They were part of a jump scare that doesn't seem to end. It was just a 120 <laughs> minute jump scare. I got up uh, thinking that it was over because there was a part where it hit a long silence, and right. I, I got up and I was like, "Oh, thank God, it's over." 28 minutes in. <laughs> Seriously, last night, I-, I was talking to my girlfriend. I had a sudden realization, and I just told her, oh, God, I just re- I just realized Spencer usually listens to this before the podcast. I need to warn him. I don't think he's really <laughs> mentally prepared. Because I told him, this sounds like a nightmare. This sounds like a blender of torture victims. I've told him this, but I didn't tell him the length. I need to tell him that. <laughs> Spencer, before we wrap up this podcast, I want to just let you know... What happened to Captain Beefheart? Fell in front of a semi-truck is the only only sane <laughs> thing you can say. Shockingly enough, even after his Rolling Stone interview where he said he was in charge of everything and all of his bandmates were stupid and the drummer didn't even exist, John French came back to the band and started playing with Captain Beefheart again. And the rest of the band did not just immediately leave him. They kept playing with Captain Beefheart up until 1974. I mean, why would you leave the cult? Why is public abuse like going to deter them where where personal one-on-one abuse didn't do it? <gasps> uh, they, they saved with Captain Beefheart, not for the money. They were never really that financially successful. They constantly struggled with money and they got so fed up with it. Captain Beefheart himself sold out and started doing more accessible rock music which everyone hated. Nobody liked the fact that Captain Beefheart was trying to be normal. It it sounded terrible. After doing a European tour and refusing to pay his band members because of how awful they were, they all just said, fuck you, we're out of here. We're done with you. You're an abusive leader. We're out. He would go on to form a brand new magic band with people half his age in the 70s. And it kind of had a renaissance where people started re-listening to his wacky antics. But it never really got to be the exact same sort of notoriety that he got with Trap Mask Replica before the 1970s started. John French would collaborate with him off and on, but would constantly leave him for different Awful reasons. Either uh, he joined Captain Beefheart, who proceeded to berate and fire a good friend of John French's, to helping him record an album, only to have Beefheart send him a list of 40 songs that he wrote without knowing any music theory, telling him to learn it in three hours or else. Eventually, Beefheart would retire from music entirely in 1982. Round of applause, everyone. And turn back to what he used to do as a child. He was actually an art prodigy as a child and was incredibly gifted with sculpture and expressionist paintings and drawings. And when he went to art, he was incredibly financially successful and got to retire very peacefully up until he died in 2010 due to complications from multiple sclerosis. thought it would be complications from John French stabbing him. Uh, that's... <laughs> 
complications with a knife. <laughs> complications with being haunted by everyone he basically murdered inside and out. I don't know, maybe that gives some solace to some people who worked with him in the past, knowing that he died of MS and he stopped recording music, so he stopped torturing people in the recording studio. Um, and torturing uh, members of the buying public. <laughs> yeah, he pretty much became a recluse and disappeared from the public conscious altogether. And, you know, he, he found success in art. I guess that was what he was always meant to do. So I don't know if you want to call that sweet in a way, because that guy sure was a douchebag, but that's where he ended up. Like I said, no justice. Last night I re-listened to it all the way through. And this would be about my seventh or eighth time. So I'm like Matt Groening right now. It, it's clicked with me at this point. Oh, it's making though, sense to you? You know I listen to music on constant basis. I wanted to see what you think of my opinion of this album. What do you think, Jack, the guy who listens to my bloody Valentine and thinks it's kind of nice to listen to? What do I think about Jack, I... Tell me that. Tell, tell me you're not one of them. I'm not? <sighs> I thought it was good the first time I listened to it. It's a good thing this show is is, is ending. It's a good thing. <laughs> hey, we're only some for a couple months. We're not ending permanently. <laughs> I, I, I promise this is the worst. Uh, like, I have a back catalog of, like, The Who and shit like Kanye West. You know, things that people listen to for fun nowadays at parties. Mm-hmm. We're never going to get this dark again, Spencer, I promise. Mm, Saint Anger is on the horizon. It's, it's coming. Okay, okay. okay. This... <laughs> Saint Anger's Saint Anger's in the distance, and it, it it ain't looking pretty. But I'm somebody who grew up with new metal. I think Saint Anger is much easier to stomach than this. Nothing. I'll, I'll give it that. Will ever be as bad as this? That's where I'm sitting. This is my blunderphonics. Like this is the quote that'll be etched in plaster. And will be used against me ten episodes from now. I know it, but this is your epi- this is your Blunderphonics epitaph. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Carve it on my tombstone. Uh, I'm gonna have to start up the next season of Blunderphonics with a eulogy for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you quit music. But I-, I feel like I should explain a little bit the reason why I like this album because I don't think it's a masterpiece. I, I will say that I'm the kind of person who loves Sign of the Times, London Calling, The White Album. Those are all double albums. Those are all albums composed of mostly wonderful songs, and I think they're too long. This album, Jesus Christ, it, it's hard to sit through. At the same time, I'm the kind of person where when I listen to music, I like hearing about the backstory of it. Whenever I listen to it, I think of that communal room of these people who had to rehearse 14 hours a day, and I listen to all of this crazy nonsense. This is an album that it's remembered for a very good reason. It's not quite a 9-11 of music. It's more of like when you watch a Roman Polanski movie and you're like, yeah, he's a pedophile and an asshole, but there is there is talent here. And I have to res- I have to respect it for that. I won't pay for it. I'll, I'll, I'll pirate it because <laughs> I don't want you to get my fucking money, you psychopath. You sound but like you did make. Some- oh, you sound like the people who eat Chick-fil-A. And they're like, yeah, they donate to the, the country that's executing gays. But like, have you tasted their lemonade? You know what? I sure do love chocolate. It's a shame they sell water back to natives <laughs> in third world countries. Uh. I-, I know cows feel but damn it, that cheeseburger is good. I, I don't know. Th- there is something about it. I'd prefer listening to this than something by Drake. 
or Post Malone, something where it's like, yeah, it's easy to listen to, but I get no substance out of this. I, I guess this album's like Cancer. Cancer really changes you as a person. Uh, it's not good, but like, it sure does change your perspective. So it's good in the same way Cancer is good, Spencer. I, I can't help it. I, I do like this. I, I listen to this and I'm like, more chaotic than Bedlam and Goliath, but I, I get more of a kick out of it than Mars Volta at some points. I, I have to be honest. Maybe all of this music listening has damaged my brain at high volumes. You know, like how coal miners used to eat incredibly spicy foods to the point where their intestines were literally shriveled up husks. Jack's, uh, Jack's getting decidedly self-aware. He does put me in the barrel if I don't do well enough. That's... <gasps> I, at least I don't emotionally... And physically abuse you. I let the. I let. The, I let. What do you the, call uh, this episode? What do you call making me listen to these albums? I, I let the albums do that to you. Bullshit! <laughs> this is your problem. <laughs> if it weren't for you, these wouldn't exist to me. <laughs> hey, Spencer! Ignoring the problem doesn't mean it's not there. <laughs> now I'm the Chick Fil A oh consumer. Ignoring it is just as bad. You have to actively protest against this kind of music. You you need to side with Tipper Gore. <laughs> You're right. You're right, Jack. You are you are putting me on the don't, vanguard, and it's it's hard, but it's where I belong. Don't be a centrist. Don't sit on that fence. You, you could be a villain like me. You're right. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. I've always said it. This <laughs> is the icing on the cake of season one. We're, obviously, we're not, like, done. We're not done forever. We decided to take a three-month break. We have a lot of great new content on the way. Uh, the one I'm most excited about is we started up a YouTube channel, Blunderphonics, uh, where we are going to have music-enhanced episodes. We could actually have you guys listen to this awful music with us. Be sure to go and subscribe to that. It's already up. Uh, we'll be having videos on it quite shortly after this episode. And when we come back from the hiatus, uh, we plan to have even more content. We're going to go from uh, semi-weekly to weekly. So an episode every week. And uh, that's not going to mean a shorter season, but that's what we're taking the time off for, is to, to build up that stockpile. That's right. Take, take this as a sign that, you know, uh, abusing people and torturing people, they, they will still stay with you. Spencer will still stick around. In fact, he wants to make this happen more. So even though he says I'm an awful person, he's still sticking with me. That's absolutely right, Captain. <laughs> All right, before we completely sign off, Spencer, is there anything you would like to plug individually? Cock and Bull Podcast. You? That's all you, you want to explain what Cock and Bull is or just no. leave it at that? No. <laughs> no, they've had 10 episodes to figure that out. I am in the process of becoming more involved on social media. I don't really have anything to plug personally just yet, but I will most likely be adding links to that on our future YouTube episodes. Also, I will be in the process of publishing songs I've been working on. I'm, I'm currently in a limbo where I have a lot of songs and I'm just a little bit timid on how I want to release them. But they will be coming very soon. Um, I just am not ready to make it public just yet. But if you all want to keep in touch with me personally, you could always go to rateyourmusic.com. I'm under the name The Dissonant Opinion. And even though this is the end of season one, still feel free to go there and recommend albums for us to cover. Jack, did anyone in particular recommend Beefheart? Yes, uh, user Captain Puffin recommended we talked about Trap Mask Replica. And it was a wonderful idea. And this is one of the first albums I thought of for doing this show. But after Captain Puffin recommended it, I'm like, we definitely have to do it. Captain Puffin also recommended listening to The Beatles, The White Album. User Stand by the Seawall recommended Gaucho by Steely Dan, 
which was actually an album I didn't initially plan. That was one that I listened to a long time ago and kind of forgot about, even as a Steely Dan fan. I was incredibly happy to have somebody recommend that to me and have Spencer listen to it and actually like it for once, so. I sincerely thank everyone for reaching out and recommending things to the show. It's it's awesome to actually see people uh, putting engaging feedback out there. Rate and review us on iTunes if you're able to. That's That would really help us out in the off time. I think that's all. I think I think now we just uh, we pull the plug and allow the studio to flood. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's all drown. Thank you all so much for listening, and we will see you in three months. It's been an honor, Captain. Fast and bulbous. Bye.